Thanks, Dan. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to welcome you to, to E3. Thanks for spending some time with you. I want to start my, my message off uh, by, by sharing, because it's generosity, right? And I'm generous this way. These are my running shoes. Um, these are my... Uh, we, we, we like to think of ourselves as an Adidas family. I got these a couple years ago. These shoes, um, according to my Nike Run app, have uh, 329 miles on them. So um, these are my old, my, my old running shoes. Um, I keep them around just as work shoes now, but occasionally I'll do a run. These have, according to my app, 659 miles on them. And uh, that, you know, to a lot of us, um, that sounds like a lot. We have a, a lot of endurance athletes in our community, so a lot of people are just like, I'm not impressed, and that's fine. Um, but the reason that's significant for me and the reason that's significant for us today is that those are the first two pairs of running shoes I have ever owned. Uh, I was decidedly kind of mustered out of the athletic stream of life um, somewhere around high school. You know, I, I played YMCA basketball, YMCA soccer, middle school soccer and football. And then um, all of a sudden, guys got real serious about football. And, and I had everything going for me, athlete-wise, except I was slow and weak. Um, and so I decided to, you know, kind of turn and, and do a lot more, you know, singing stuff and, and academic stuff, which is fine. Um, and uh, that's the way things remained. And through most of my life, I just, there were periods of time when I would work out and be in shape, but by and large, I kind of just left that behind. And I certainly, certainly, when I was attempting to play sports, um, I hated running. I despised, I was the, always the kid with the pain, all oh, the pain in my side, and it would burn when I would try to breathe in. It was miserable. I hated and despised it, um, whether it was wind sprints or any type of distance running. But a few years ago, a couple of things conspired to, to sort of shift my thinking. And, and one, because I'm, I'm that guy, I read a book. And uh, the book just was really, really inspiring, particularly about running. And the second thing that happened was I was getting to the point in my life where I recognized that uh, I needed something in my life to push me and to challenge me. That if I allowed the arc of my life to just keep going, uh, and particularly in, in uh, the arena of physical exercise, I could see kind of how it was going to go. You know, I was going to just, there were going to be more aches and pains and, and things were just going to keep on a particular arc. And so what I actually decided is I, I decided to take this book that uh, was inspiring to me, to sort of take it as it, at its word, which was the idea that like, look, human beings are actually made to run. We are made to run. Our physiology is such that we are made to run. And I was like, okay, I, I ain't buying it, but I'm going to take you at your word. But then the other truth that I had to wrap my head around was that uh, I, needed some, I needed a goal in my life to, to push against. I wanted to, to, to not reverse necessarily the effects of aging, but I wanted to fight it a little bit. And I knew that if I just gave up and just allowed things to keep going, that I, I knew what was going to happen. But I was like, you know, what happens if I just decide to, to explore the idea that maybe I can be more than I thought I was? Because up to that point, I thought I was not a runner and not an athlete. And let me be clear here. I am not a fast runner. I am not going to be in the top 
10%, 20% of the finishers on February 5th. I, I have two goals when I run. Uh, don't be last. Actually, maybe three. Don't be last and try to be faster than someone younger than me and try to be faster than someone older than me. So, you know, you might catch me at, at the last sprint of, uh, of the half marathon on February 5th. I might be racing down an 80-year-old grandmother, but man, if, if, I, if I can catch her, I'm taking her down. So we all need challenge in our life or we don't grow. That's the truth. That's the takeaway. You know, if I don't get out and if I started, I started with a couch to 5K and it was like, can you run for a minute and then walk for like six? And I was like, I barely. And I just kept adding time to it, kept adding time to it. And now I'm in the midst of, of my training and other folks are training for the, for the full marathon. I'm training for the half. So, you know, I'm kind of in the, my long runs, eight miles uh, right now. And then I have some recovery runs. And let me tell you something. I want to be really, really clear. I have never had an easy day of running ever, ever. I have never gotten done with like three miles and be like, I could go another three. When I finish, I am like, I am sweating, I smell and I am, but I know that I need it. Because if, if I don't challenge myself, I do not grow. It's a great principle of life. We don't challenge ourselves, we do not grow. Growth only happens in the uncomfortable places of life. Anybody know kind of what I'm talking about? Whether it's physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. Growth happens in the uncomfortable places of life. And I, and I wanna preface our time together because we're gonna spend three weeks together uh, being to one degree or another uncomfortable. All right? This is going to be what we call in ministry sometimes a high challenge series. And we're going to be talking about things that hit us right where we live. And uh, it might be different for some of us from what you're used to experiencing on Sunday. Because I believe, uh, you might have heard me say this before, I believe that the gospel of Jesus is meant to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. Because I think that God wants more than anything for us to grow to be like them, which means he's going to be constantly, gently pulling us in to uncomfortable places. And it's my job to be that guy for three weeks and pull us in to an uncomfortable talk uh, on generosity. And so I'm, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If this makes you uncomfortable, I'm going to ask you to not check out. All right, we're going to talk about money. And we're going to talk about time. And we're going to talk about how you spend your, your life in terms of your gifts and, and passions. All right? And that hits us where we, where we live because it talks about how we live out our faith day to day. Do we live out the, the, the faith that we profess on Sundays? So it's going to push on some of you. Because for some of you, uh, the answer might be, you know what, not. I'm not there yet. I'm just going to ask you to not check out. Hang with it. Because I could have checked out at any point of the Couch to 5K program. I couldn't have told you, like, uh, if four years ago, if you had said, hey, Eric, you know, one day you're going to be running a half marathon and you're going to run eight miles instead of one minute, I'd have been no chance. Because I, I had no idea how I was going to grow and evolve. So just stay with us. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Malachi, or as we also might know him, Malachi. Um, uh, 
Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So a little bit more than halfway through your Bible. And we're going to go to chapter 3. Malachi was a prophet in uh, Israel. He was active probably around the 5th century-ish B.C. And prophets were, were some of my most favorite people in the Old Testament because they had really, really huge personalities. They tended to show up mostly uninvited and speak hard, challenging truths to mostly the leaders of God's people. Malachi is no different. So this is what the, this passage that God led me to, this is the way it reads. Uh, God is speaking through the prophet, starting in verse six. He says, I'm the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we've never gone away? God says, should people cheat God? Which is, I think is a rhetorical question, like no. (laughs) Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. God says, you are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all the nations will call you blessed for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So this is the text that we're gonna actually be dealing with in one form or another for this entire series. But we're actually, it's not even just this passage. Um, When I started wrapping my head around kind of where I thought we wanted to go, I actually zeroed in on one verse. And one verse actually has the framework for these weeks that we're going to be spending together. And I really want us to get this verse down into our spirit, so to speak. So we're actually gonna bring the verse back up on the screen and we're actually gonna read it together. Can we make that black, please? Uh, Black background, please. Um, So we're going to be reading verse 10 together. And it's just the central central part of this passage. Let's read us together. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. I love it when God says, try me. Like, I dare you. Um, So that's where we're gonna go. And and I wanna be very clear about a couple things. Um, We are gonna be talking about money. We are gonna be talking about finances. But at E3, when we talk about generosity, long ago, uh, we decided to also make it very clear that generosity is about more than money. So at E3, we talk about generosity in terms of three things. Generosity in terms of time, 
So how do you spend the time that God has given you? You can be generous with your time or you can be very stingy. A friend calls you, the church calls you, uh, there's, there's a service opportunity and you can either say, yes, I'll be there, I'll show up or you can say, no, I won't be. You can also be generous or stingy at E3 with your talents, with the gifts that God has given you. We all have passions. We all have gifts. Some of us are musicians. Some of us are teachers. Some of us have the gift of hospitality. And we all have the ability to be generous with those things or stingy with those things. And then as we've already mentioned at E3 uh, and in any place, generosity also comes up in terms of your treasures, your time, your talents, your treasures, your finances. We've all been gifted with a certain amount of finances and we can either choose to release those things or we can choose to be stingy with them. So I wanna be real clear about that. So whenever we say generosity, it is not only financial, right? Please hear me on that. Because there's some of us in this room where might be in, you might be in school, you might be in a rough place of your life, and you'll be like, look, Pastor Eric, if you want to have a conversation about generosity in terms of treasures, it's going to be a short conversation because there are no treasures. I don't have anything to put into the storehouse because it all goes to the bill house. Okay? But you probably have some time and you probably have some talents and some gifts. Uh, in verse 10, what I started noticing is that I felt like there were three aspects uh, in, in the imagery of verse 10 that I wanted to talk about. And the words, they're sort of key words in verse 10. God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And so storehouse was a word that just jumped out at me. What is the storehouse? What does the storehouse symbolize for us? And then he notices, he also says, look, bring the tithes and the offerings. And then lastly, he says, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. Other translations say, I'm going to open up the floodgates of heaven. It's great imagery. And he said, I'm going to pour out a blessing. And so I thought like, well, what, what are those three things? What do they symbolize? What do they mean? And so these are the three weeks that we're going, these are the three weeks of our series. So today we're going to talk about the storehouse. And I'm actually going to talk about what are some barriers to generosity the next week, we're going to talk about tithes and offerings. We're going to talk about guidelines. What are biblical guidelines for giving? How does God want us to give? How does he want us to wrap our heads around giving to, to his work in the world? And then lastly, we're going to talk about what is the promise that God gives? What are the floodgates of heaven? What might it mean to, to, to take God at his word and say, okay, God, I'm going to put you to the test. I'm going to be generous what might the blessing look like, all right? Does that make sense? You guys cool with this? Everybody's locked in and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna be okay together? Yeah, all right, okay. So that's the central text. Um, and, and what I wanna do is kind of, like I said, wrap my head around first, what does the storehouse mean? And the storehouse in Hebrew can mean a lot of different things. Uh, the, the, the word can literally mean a place you put your grain, a place you put, you know, anything that you want to store. But as I studied, one, one interesting line of thought jumped out at me, and it was the fact that the storehouse in this context can also mean the treasure room of the king. So God can simply be saying uh, in that context, look, Bring the tithes 
into my treasure house. You know, and in the ancient Near East, the, the king would have a room where he would keep his trophies. He would keep his gold. He would keep the things that symbolized his greatness, his uh, reign over his territory. And in this, in this verse, God's saying, hey, look, all those tithes, all those offerings, bring them to me and put them inside, the text would say, my treasure house. And I think it's interesting and it's important for me to think about this. That made me think of a, of a statement that Jesus makes just a few pages over in the Bible in Matthew 6. Um, Matthew chapter 5 through, or chapter 5 through chapter 7-ish is the Sermon on the Mount, central teaching of Jesus. And in Matthew 6, Jesus says this, and, and there are some interesting similarities between the language here. Um, Malachi is in Hebrew, Jesus is speaking, Matthew is written in Greek. And this is what the, uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus says here, verse 19, chapter six. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus says, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So Jesus is talking about treasures here. We just talked about the idea that God is saying, bring, bring the offerings that you have into my treasure house or into my storehouse. And Jesus says, look, there's some interesting things about treasures that you need to wrap your head around. First of all, he says, look, don't store them here on earth because three things will get them. What are they? Moths, rust, and thieves. And when I was thinking about this, I was like, those three things in the ancient world would probably take out almost anything that you tried to keep your hands around. Because if it was a textile, moths are gonna get it. If it's a metal, if it's somehow important, you don't keep that thing, uh, you, you, you know, in the weather, in the elements, the rust is gonna get it. And remember, in this context, there's no banks. Whatever treasure you had, you buried in your house and you hoped that a thief would not get it. And so Jesus says, look, you've got these treasures and if you try to keep a hold of them, three things are mostly going to happen. Moths are gonna eat them, rust is gonna destroy them and whatever they don't get, the thieves might come and take. This is a, this is a recipe for anxious living, is it not? You have something that's important to you. You have something that's precious to you. You wanna keep a hold of it and yet you know that if you keep a hold of it, these are the things that are going to happen. So Jesus says what? What's the solution? He says, take those treasures and he says, store them up where? In heaven, okay? Now, remember, you may have heard me say this before, heaven in Jesus's world does not mean out there. It does not mean the clouds. It does not mean another world. It doesn't mean... Uh, Oh, sorry, man. I, I'm sorry. I was going to go. What's the, Harry, what's the bank in Harry Potter? No, I knew where to look, though, right? If you, in case you guys are wondering, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you need to be over here. Over here. It's not Gringotts. Uh, heaven for Jesus is simply this. It's the place where God 
reigns. It is not in the clouds. The heavens is wherever God reigns perfectly and completely. So Jesus is not saying, take these treasures that you have and, I don't know, ship them off or launch them into space or even put them, you know, in some kind of ephemeral place. Jesus is simply saying this, take the treasures that you have and move them into the place where God rules over them. In Malachi language, he would simply be saying this, bring those treasures into the storehouse. Bring them into my treasure room. And this is not just Jesus like, you know, giving pastors uh, some, some ammunition to ask for money. There's actually a, a really, really deep truth buried into this. And, and, it, and, he, and he goes on and unpacks it. Uh, verse 22, Jesus is still talking. He says, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. This is the same teaching. Jesus isn't jumping around here topically. This flows from the treasures to your eye. In the ancient world, uh, the relationship between your, your eye and what it saw was, you know, we didn't have all the science that we have now. And so the ancient world looked at the eye sort of like Jesus saying as a window or a lamp. And so what you focused on, Jesus is saying, what you focused on can actually, doesn't stay out there. It travels through your eye into your heart, your spirit, your mind, your very being. Let me spell this out to you. Jesus is simply saying, if you have treasures and you keep them out where the thieves can get them and where the rust can take them and where the moths can eat them up, guess what? You know what tends to happen? You tend to, I've taught on this before, your eye tends to go to them constantly. How are my treasures doing? Is there a moth over there? Uh, thieves getting them? How, how are we doing on the rust? Do I need some steel wool? to? Right? And Jesus is saying, look, if you do that long enough, that stuff doesn't just stay over there. It starts to travel inside your soul. And your eye just stays fixated on it. So Jesus is saying, he's starting with the solution. He's saying, take those things Get them out of your eyesight. Put them at the place where God reigns. So you know what you do? You're not going, let me look at the, you know what you say? Oh, you know, oh, I put those where God rules them. And God is a pretty good pest control. I don't need to watch over the moths. I don't need to watch over the rust. I don't need to watch out for thieves because you know what? I've put them under God's control. Take the tithes and offerings, bring them into my treasure house. And just so you know, uh, Jesus, there's an interesting play on words here. Uh, in verse 22, Jesus says, look, when your eye is good, everything's great. When your eye is bad, things not so great. The Greek words that he uses there are haplos and paneros. 
And most of, the, most of the biblical use of these words does mean good and bad, but there's a couple places in the Bible where they take haplos and they don't just use, use it to mean good, they actually use it to mean generous. And paneros, sometimes, most of the time it means bad, but a couple times in the Bible it actually means stingy. And so if you read that, if you just translate that into this text again, uh, the text would read like this. Look, when your eye is generous, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is stingy, your whole body is filled with darkness. So Jesus is not just saying, look, take those treasures and give them to the church because pastors need a raise and, and churches need missionaries. We, all those things you know, might be true or might not be true, but Jesus is saying, look, if you just spend your time thinking about your treasure, something is gonna happen to your heart. And I think that I tend to live my life by, by giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt that he knows the best way to live. And then he closes up this, this section this way. He says, no one can serve two masters for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both what? God and money. It's that true. So Jesus kind of hammers it home here. He's like saying, look, if you keep your eye going back to these treasures over and over again, your heart is going to become divided between the treasures that you're accumulating no matter what they look like. And there's nothing wrong with accumulating the treasures. Let me be clear on that. It's about what we do after, we've had, after we get them. Because Jesus says, you watch them too much and they will start to become your master, which means we're talking about idolatry. Now in the Bible, uh, idolatry is actually one of the basic struggles for God's people. Almost from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation. And uh, I told you guys before, my growth group has been going through the book of Exodus. Uh, anybody ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Okay. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> Expect a little bit more. But don't lie to me. Don't lie to me to make me feel good. If you haven't heard, it's okay. Um, so there's these things called the Ten Commandments in the, in the book of Exodus. They are the basic rules of living that God gives his people. Just ten. I guess we probably couldn't handle eleven. But he's like, look, there's 10 things that you got to know about living with God and living with people. And here's the way the Ten Commandments start. I'm just going to read them from the screen. They, they start like this. Then God gave the people all these instructions, just 10. And he says this, I'm the Lord, your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Here's what I've done for you. You must not have any other God but me. That's the first commandment. God's like, look, all other commandments flow from this one. Let's be clear. You can't have another God. And Jesus says, look, if you don't deal with your treasures in a, in a way that honors God, and what Jesus is saying is like, look, take them out of the place where you own them and put them in the place that God owns them. God rules them. And if you don't do that, you will be tempted to drift into idolatry because you can't serve two masters. So there's a, there's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller, and uh, he's an author, writer, and I was, um, he wrote an article in a magazine about idolatry. 
because I think we get all this. You know, we get this. Uh, but what I liked about what Keller did is he said, look, I'm going to give you four ways to identify if you are drifting into idolatry and how to find out if you are. And just so you guys know, the way I view the, the, my Christian life is that in a way, I'm always gonna be struggling with idolatry because if you read the record of God's people, like that's just what they do over and over again. But the, my life is about finding out, discovering those idols and just knocking them over. And I might find another one in a year, but I'll knock that one over too, all right? So if you've never thought about well, how do you discover an idol in your life, here's four ways. This is very, very practical stuff. He says, one, uh, what's in your imagination? What's in your imagination? When you are sitting by yourself and there's no kids distracting you and the TV might be off and you're just hanging out and you're not taking a nap, where does your mind go? Does your mind just constantly go to one topic, one thing more that I could buy for myself, one vacation more that I could take for myself? Where does your solitude, your mind, and your heart go? Because if it goes to the same thing over and over again, Keller would say, that just might be an idol that's growing up for you. And idols can also be attitudes, by the way. Second thing he says, this is an easy one, kind of a no-brainer. Where does your money go? Where does your money go? You know, if you, were to, uh, if you were to take open your checkbook for somebody and go, okay, here it is. And there was one category that was just way out of whack. And it wasn't like a necessities. It wasn't like, well, that's, you know, groceries. But even groceries, even food can become an idol. Anything can be. If there's something in your, in your checkbook, in your finances uh, that just says something and when someone looks at it, they go, tell me about that. And you're like, well, uh, 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 you know, we start backpedaling. We kind of want to hide. Your money will be, will, can determine your idol. And you can, I, I'm not sure, I'm not wealthy enough to think about this, but I think you can spend money to get money. So like you can look at the money, you're like, well, I spent more money so I could make more money. Money can be an idol and it can identify an idol at the same time is what I'm trying to say. Third thing that Keller says, how do you deal with unanswered prayers or frustrated hopes? See, we all have things that we pray for and don't happen. We all have things that we hope for that don't come to pass. And I believe God allows us, if you read the book of Psalms, God allows us to mourn. He allows us to grieve. He allows us to be disappointed. But some of us, we pray for something or someone and it doesn't come to pass and we are devastated. And the devastation then just doesn't lift. And I believe the biblical, the biblical call is, is not necessarily a hard and fast you know, well, you can only mourn for so long. It's a gray area. But I believe that, that God calls me to what I would say, suffer redemptively. So there gets to a point where I'm saying, can I release that thing that I've wanted so bad? If you guys know me well enough, I won't bore you with the story. But when I moved here, I had such a struggle with the move. My idol was to move back to Chicago or move to a big city. I wanted it more than anything. And God said, no. 
or maybe not yet. And I just, I went off the cliff. I'll tell you, it's close to being suicidal as I've ever been. That revealed the idol of my life. And I had to release it. And it was hard. And it took some journeying, it took some praying, it took some counseling, counseling, but I finally got there. The last thing that Keller says to identify the idol is to look at the uncontrollable emotions of your life. And what he says in this is he says, look, we all have things, um, we all have emotions that sometimes drive us to do things that we would say make no sense to ourselves. We might look at something where we're like, man, I just, I spent a lot of time or I spent a lot of money on some activity and when I really think about it, I actually didn't even want to do it. But there was something driving me to it. Anybody ever had something like this? where there was some fear or some anger or some uncertainty that just made me make a decision. And Keller says, look, you start following that trail. What's at the bottom of that emotion? Why did I make that decision? And said, eventually you get to something uh, like a fear and then you go, well, what was I afraid of? Well, maybe I was afraid of being alone, which is a valid fear. But when that fear becomes an idol, you gotta take a look at that. So this is not easy stuff, but this is essentially critical because I will just tell you this, uh, based on what God's saying, look, you've got to bring your treasures into my storehouse. Well, a lot of us are going like, I won't do that, God, because I've watched these things and I've got my mind on them and they have become an idol and I don't want to give my idol to you. And I would just say it this way. Uh, the fact of the matter for me is that um, idolatry is a barrier to true generosity because it always puts the treasure in the wrong storehouse. And before I close, I wanna tell you something, just kind of a general wisdom thing that I'm just coming to realize over and over again. The thing about idols, unless their name is God or Jesus Christ rightly understood, you know what idols just want from you? They want a little more. Any idol that you have, all it wants from you is just a little more. Just a little more than you gave it last time. Whether that idol is sex, money, playtime, vacations, affluence, all the idol wants, if you keep it out of the treasure house of God, if you keep it out of God's rule and in your rule, that idol just want a little more from you. But you know what a little more adds up to after a long time? Everything. Everything. An idol just wants everything from you. And God is saying the remedy for that is to take it out of your reign and put it into my reign. And here's why. Um, Psalm 50 says it so much better than I could ever say it myself. Um, verse nine in Psalm 50. God is talking here about the sacrifices people give him, which it seems counterintuitive because I'm just talking about generosity, but listen to this. God says, I don't need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. 
For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains, and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For all the world is mine and everything in it. You see, I'm not telling you to give to God because God is poor. I'm not telling, to, telling you to release your time because God needs to sit down with you and hear how much you love him. He wants to hear that, but he doesn't need it. He is complete in his love. God's like, I've got it. God's saying, I want you to release it because it was never yours to begin with. It's not yours. God's like, I gave this to you as Dan so effectively spoiled my, my line. It's his breath in my lungs. It's his breath in my lungs. It's his money in my account. It's his ability to teach. It's his time that he's given me. One day he'll take it back. And I won't have to worry about that anymore. But until that time, he's saying, look, you don't have to give because I'm poor. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine, God says. I just want you to get it out of your storehouse because I know what it will do to your spirit. And it was never yours to begin with. And some of us sit there and we go, but, but wait, Pastor Eric, but you, you know, the job I have is my job. It's my, I got that job. My name's on the check. And I would say, okay, how'd you get that job? Did a friend hook you up with a, with a connection? Did you get a lead on a job just because of some random thing you saw in the newspaper? Oh, no, Eric. I, I, no, I got that. I found it myself. I found it myself. I did all the work. And I'd say, okay. But how'd you get the resource? How'd you, how'd you get educated? Did you have a good teacher? Oh, no, Eric. You, you understand. I had lousy teachers. I had, to, I, had to, I had to get over all these barriers. And I, I did it. I did it. It's mine. It's mine. I go, okay. Well, tell me about your family. Did you grow up in a house that valued education, that valued music, that valued hard work? Uh, maybe, at, maybe at that point we get to, yeah. I go, did you choose your family? You see, when you drill down deep enough, I believe, you get to a place where you have to acknowledge the fact that you are not responsible for everything that you have. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, put it this way. He says, what do you have that you have not been given? And I'm like, oh, man. Get it, Paul. <laughs> so I ask you the same thing. What do you have that you have not been given? And why are you holding on to it? So the few questions, if you don't have anything right now yet that has hit you or, or, or driven it home, I would just end with these two questions. First of all, have you been flirting with another God? Or have you been embracing another God? You're like, man, I'm, I'm way beyond flirtation. We have moved in together. <laughs> you know? And I just want you to remember what that idol is going to demand of you. Just a little more. Just a little more. 
just a little more. The second question is simply this. Is God calling you to give in one of these arenas of generosity? Is he nudging? He's saying, man, he's like, you've, uh, he's like saying, you know, you got, too, you got too much in your storehouse. You're watching too much. And he just says, look, take that stuff. Bring it to my storehouse. I'll take care of it, and I will release you. So those are things to ponder. Um, I'm going to invite the band up, and, and they're going to sing one last song that I feel like just kind of drives home what we're talking about. It gives you time to process some of this stuff. But listen, while they're doing that, one of the things I did with, with this series, I wanted to get some help because here's the deal. We are a generous community already. And so I emailed some people, just some folks that I know. I said, hey, I want to hear stories of generosity. Tell me how you have been generous. And so some folks emailed me, and I've promised them anonymity. So you're not going to hear any names. I've tried to strip out the details so you can't be like, oh, I know who that person is. But look, these are not, these are not like the super Christians. I know some of them. <laughs> but these are the people that serve you coffee. These are the people that sometimes they sing for you. These are the people that may open the door for you on Sunday morning. These are the people who you may not even know what they do. They're just here in this community. But I just wanted to hear, I want you guys to know that there are people living this out on tiny levels and on big levels. So here it is. So back when I was, uh, back when I was a youngster at E3, my late teens or early 20s, I was in a growth group. Uh, E3 had this next step campaign. It was a financial a campaign that they were trying to um, accomplish some big financial goals. We were talking about the importance of financial giving and I asked my growth group leaders if they would stay behind me with me alone after the group so we could go through my budget and see how I could move stuff around to afford to give to the campaign. I had a Bright Futures and I had a Pell Grant and I was waiting tables at a local restaurant in order to make it through college and somehow have a life. We broke down all my expenses line by line and because I was a kid, I thought these adults would show me how I was messing up and, so I, and they would show me how I could afford to give to the campaign, but they released it from me. They looked at the numbers and said, actually, uh, you can't give to this campaign. <clears throat> you can't give very much, if anything. You can't even really give financially to E3 on a regular basis, but you give so much of your time and your talents in so many ministries, and that's just as valuable. Now, I was a baby Christian at the time, so that was honestly the first time anyone had ever told me I could give in a way that wasn't financial. In those early days of E3, it was kind of all hands on deck. Time out. It's still all hands on deck. <laughs> and I was sold out. I gave wherever I could. I contributed to the creative team. I came up with drama ideas, different artistic components. A friend and I, a friend and I were on the ground floor of the student ministry, the entire student ministry. Every free moment of my life was devoted to E3, it seemed. And sure, it was tiring at times and frustrating, but overall it was easy because I knew I was involved in something that was bigger than myself. While up until recently, I didn't have the means to give my money to God, I got to give my figurative blood, sweat, and tears. And God has obviously blessed me and my family tenfold for that. That's taking those treasures and putting it saying, God, do something with this. And he's asking that for all of us, not because he needs it, but because he knows the cost of idolatry 
in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen.